Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It is March the 11th, 2022. We're having quite a trust-centric day. Earlier today, I talked to Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of Inspire and Trust. He's a best-selling writer, Speed of Trust and Smart Trust. Uh, and I'm going to have a conversation today with a professor of sociology at Princeton University, Viviana Zeliza, who had an incredibly interesting piece a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times called When We Were Socially Distanced money brought us together. Uh, Viviana is also the author of The Social Meaning of Money. And I found the piece extremely interesting because it suggests that in COVID, money brought us together. We tend to think that money separates us, but actually, according to Viviana Zelitsa, money brings us together. Uh, Viviana, perhaps you can talk more about your thesis and in a broader context, the social meaning of money. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here and talk with you about these issues. I have been thinking uh, and writing about money for, for many, many years. So I've kind of noticed patterns of money. And what I noticed in the first months of the pandemic as I was listening to comments from, from friends and others that they were donating uh, more money and, and also even that the consumption was creating bonds with these people that I don't have in the piece, but people shopping for things together or actually bartering goods, that there was money and economic activity more broadly was bringing people together. And that fit very nicely into the theories I have been developing for, for many years, which counter the standard views of money that are have been proposed for many years by economics, right? Money, uh, as somebody said uh, once, uh, before I started doing this work, money is really too important to be left just to economists. And I took that very seriously. And I've been doing, I've been taking, stealthily taking money away from economists' pocketbooks to show its meaning. Um, so essentially, uh, the standard view of money is fung that money is fungible, that all dollars, you know, the, the expression in the United States, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And I'm saying that's, not correct. We actually have made enormous differentiations among categories of money. So that is the main contrast in the theory. And I show how multiple monies uh, develop, why amount is not just what we care about. It's not just how much money, but we care about which money. And in this case, the focus is on pandemic money. Yeah, so your thesis in the Times piece, and it, it's the logical outgrowth of your academic work, is that in COVID, we gave more, we're more charitable, we're less selfish, which is a very counterintuitive uh, observation, given how separated we were or continue to be in COVID. Is this what you found? 
Exactly. That's what struck me both in the world of donations and the other really remarkable pattern in terms of money and relationships is what happened with uh, immigrant remittances, you know, which is a huge source of money for, for many countries, as we know, more than foreign direct aid. And the World Bank predicted at the beginning of 2020, logically, <laughs> that they would go down. And in fact, that's not what happened. And again, that is an indicator of money as a social connector. And, and, and let me just put in the background, it's not just the economic view of money that is misleading in some occasions, right? Or that we have to be wary about, but also there's another uh, view of money, which is, I call it more the moralistic view, the, the corrupt view of money that necessarily money, once money enters, meanings and morality go out, that money is necessarily corrupt. And I, what I say, this is what we have to question. Sure, money is corrupt. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliantly counterintuitive position. Of course, it's, it's classically Marxist in the sense that capitalism was supposed to be the root of all evil. And as a consequence, money, it also, I guess, comes out of the Old Testament, comes out of traditional religion, that money is antisocial and encourages selfishness, but you're actually brilliantly reversing this and suggesting that money brings us together. It, it, and I actually, what I do even more is I question, when does money corrupt? And when does money bring together? Because if we don't differentiate, we can't fix things. If, uh, you know, the, so, so, so I call it, uh, I, I try to demolish what I call the hostile world's view of money, that there are two separate worlds. Here's money, here's relationships, meaning morality. And any contact between the two will corrupt each other. You know, it's not just money and relationships, but relationships in institutions that are supposed to be economic. And I, and I, what I say is, let's look when that is the case and when it connects. One of the most damaging views or consequences of this hostile world is in a world that became very important during the pandemic, visible the world of paid care, right? The assumption is that real care, if you really have the proper emotions, you don't care about proper payment. That has led to dramatic underpay, one of the reasons, right? But one of the reasons, dramatic underpay of caretakers. So it's uh, in a way, uh, my challenge to this standard theory is not just a rhetorical game, but that it has real consequences. So that let's not just clap for the uh, health workers and all the people that, you know, but let's pay them better. And it's not, they're not gonna care any less. That, that's one very concrete application. I wonder how, uh, this ties back to religion and religious attitudes to money. I know that you're married to a rabbi. I'm curious, what does your <laughs> husband think of your work? Oh, he's my number, you know, we've been married. I'm, I'm sure he's a big decades. fan, but I, I'm curious, what does he think of the message of your work, of the social importance of, of money? Can we trace this in some religious writings, maybe in the Judaic or Christian traditions? It, it is a powerful tradition, what this hostile world's tradition of money. And certainly it appears in, in, in religion. He recognizes it and he has shown me passages where that is, you know, that happens. 
but obviously he has read my books. <laughs> so I think yeah. that, I mean, to, to be fine. clear, um, Viviana, you're not saying wealth is good. You're saying no. oh, wealth doesn't make us any more social or, or selfless. It's rather money itself as a yeah. almost as a physical object, as a networked product. As a as a social category, the, you see, the idea of fungibility of money is that all monies are the same. They, it, it, it is a purely, it is, that's what it seems as the perfect means of economic exchange. What it is, you know, it's not that it's not that too. What, uh, what it obscures is this other, that we care which money, that, you know, what, if we earn, if you earn something, as a salary, you will treat it very differently than if it's an inheritance. I mean, we know that for a fact, or, or a lottery winning. Why, we can need... you explain that? So, so you brought up three things. So you earn money yeah. from your day-to-day -day job, you inherit money, or you, or you win the lottery. How, yeah. how do you treat that money differently in those three examples? I, you would treat it differently because the argument is that the source of money matters. If you get money as an inheritance from a favorite grandparent, you will be less likely to spend it, I don't know, in drugs or, you know, you will or have- on a fast car or on alcohol. You use exactly. it less selfishly, is that correct? Exactly. And you might spend a lottery winning faster or in different ways than your regular salary. And we do know that. And we do know that it even applies to monies that come in as social support monies. Mm. We know that, you know, there's very important work done by one of my colleagues on the earned income tax credit refund. And that, that uh, because it comes as a certain category of money, as not as welfare money, but as a tax money, that money will be used in different ways. But certainly, certainly the, the, from an economic perspective, the source of money should not matter for these to differentiate. In, 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 in conventional. In conventional, economic, it should not matter. And it should not matter. And there, you know, there's also very powerful, it's the behavioral economists have developed a very powerful theory of mental accounting which tells us about how people have different mental categories so that they, they observe the same processes, but from a psychological perspective. What I'm saying, what also matters is your social relations. So that that's why the grandmother money, you have a special connection as a grandchild. So that relationship will shape how- yeah, you Right, so you've turned the traditional economic argument on its head in Another of your books, Economic Lives, the subtitle is How yeah. Culture Shapes the Economy. The classic, yeah. especially sort of Marxist view, is how economics shapes culture. But for you, the culture comes first. What shapes culture then? Well, if I knew that, I would, you know, that would you be... You wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be so rich. You would be uh, living on your own no, yacht. No, I don't know. Actually, no, look, it's a profound question. No, I'm joking. And, yeah, it's a profound question, and it's a it, it's the the from my perspective and what I tell try to tell my students. You look for interactions, and you don't look for a theory wins all. So cultural absolutism would be as um, as useless as economic absolutism. 
So what about so, trust? We, we, uh, I talked earlier today to Stephen Covey about this, um, this, this famine of trust, this scarcity of trust in our age. How are we going to, how, how can your theories on money help us rebuild trust in a society where we don't trust each other, we don't trust our politicians, we certainly uh, perhaps don't even trust ourselves. How, how do we use money to rebuild trust? I'm not sure that that is the main instrument to, to build trust, but what I would say that as trusting relations emerge, the way that the money is handled will be different. And part, you know, part of what I do, I, I included in, in the article after I um, interviewed uh, somebody had done these studies of philanthropy. I'm not an expert in the field of philanthropy, but my money views help me see all these worlds, is that in fact, a lot of these direct donations and a lot of cash donations are a, a, a part of, and that is an important process that is happening, greater experimentation with direct cash relief, rather than giving, this is to support people in, in poverty situations, rather than put money with conditions. And, and when you're giving cash with no uh, entanglements, with no conditions, you're already including some form of, of, of trust. And in fact, some of the, and some form of trust in the results have been, up to now, have been pretty good. You know, yeah, no, I, I can see it. So we've done a number of shows about the guaranteed minimum income, about oh, okay. radical scheme providing people with a certain amount of money so that they can invest in themselves and their lives in a more meaningful way. I'm assuming that that fits very much into your uh, social theory of money. Exactly, very, and, and it, it, it's, you know, there's been a long-standing suspicion that you give money to the poor and the poor will somehow misspend it. This is, yeah. a, you know, I've, I've done historical work on this. This is a, cl a classically kind of Dickensian view, I guess. Exactly. And there was enormous resistance that way also to go shift from in-kind relief, relief at the turn of the 20th century to cash relief, right? Because in-kind had strings attached. And so there, there was a big shift in policy in the United States to provide cash relief at a time that consumerism started, right? Because then you have to teach the poor how to be proper consumers. But yeah. it is remarkable how that suspicion persisted so that the, um, they provided cash and not in kind, but that cash was highly regulated by home economists. So the, I mean, I'm glad that you asked that question because it is, this is a clear example that providing cash and from the evidence we have, it is, of course, it's going to be misspent by some people, but so do CEOs misspend money. So some, but in general, it, it, we, we, we see that putting the trust of this cash relief could have results, how it works in, other kinds of relationships, there will be variation. Yeah, you know? certainly when it comes to behavioral economics, it should really influence the nudge crowd, not so much in terms of the debate about whether or not they should give out money, but the question is more, at least in your terms, how the money is given out. So exactly. The amount 
It's the manner Perfect. in which exactly. you give people money. The, the, yeah, the, the form of a transaction matters. By the way, one thing when you're talking about trust and relationships in, in one world that I have examined in great detail is households and gender relations. Yeah, I can imagine. So the, the, the husband, and it's unfortunately for better or worse, it's, always, it's, it's more often the husband giving than the wife than the other way around in terms of housekeeping money. But you're suggesting it's the way that the man gives the woman money that affects how how she spends it, how responsible she is spending it on the yeah, children. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the gender pattern, and the you know, we don't have yet data on what happened in households and in terms of the management of money during the pandemic. We know a lot about women, uh, you know, getting out of the labor force to do unpaid care of their own families, but we do not know how it affected the expenses. We do know that there, you know, and I, that, that did not appear in my article, but appears in a longer paper that, that, that I wrote, that we know that there were cases increase in financial abuse because, you know, husbands keeping the stimulus check, for example, in order not to allow a woman who might, you know, might leave otherwise, you know, so this is a the, the 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 gender stories and the trust involved in money relationships and households opens up a huge thing, <laughs> a huge Pandora. Yeah, it's fascinating, and your thesis is really um, fascinating on so many different levels, Viviana. Um, we are living, of course, as we're told daily now, in unusually inflationary times. Uh, money um, has less and less value in inflationary times. I know you grew up in Argentina. Yep. Uh, a country, a society which has experienced some very, very dramatic inflationary times, almost akin to Weimar Germany. Yeah. Um, how does this play out in highly inflationary societies? There's perhaps the one we're living in now, or certainly Argentina or Weimar Germany, when people used to walk around with wheelbarrows full of money to buy a, a loaf of bread. Well, how that affects the private world of money. And, you know, I have not, I, I lived through inflationary times, but I was not observing them in the ways that I uh, observe now. But certainly the negotiations over money and, and, and the relationships of um, households to businesses in, 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 in times of inflation is something that consumer experts have, have, you know, have investigated. But uh, whether it will, whether it will affect, well, look, the, the idea with the donations is that it, it, it didn't, it, the theme of inflation was not yet there at the beginning of 2020, but the, uh, the, the, whether in fact it would affect this pattern that I identified and that we've seen, we don't know. <laughs> you know, we do know. Yes, when, when there's more money, when, when you have an, when, when it costs more to buy a loaf of bread or fill your car up, which is often the metric people are using today, especially given the Ukraine war, how does that change our attitude to money, our behavior, our spending? Well, yes, I would say that I would first have, I would insist that the nature of the relationships in which this money is spent 
will affect what happens. For example, we know that one of the most persistent, what I call is the earmarking of money. When I say we differentiate a tip from an insurance, we know one of the most powerful earmarks is the money that is saved for a child's college education, at least in the United States. Mm. And so that we do know that in general, there are examples of, you know, that, that uh, somebody might take a, have to pay something, a new car, let's say, and may take a loan with interest to pay that car before touching the college fund. Hmm. Even that would be cheaper. So there, there are certain powerful earmarks that sustain relationships that will survive inflationary or other forms of economic stress. It's fascinating, uh, Viviana. Uh, people will be perhaps regular viewers of my show will be familiar with your last name, Zeliza, because your son's been on the show. Julian Zeliza is a very distinguished young historian. He's been actually on my show a couple of times, firstly to talk about his book about Newt Gingrich on the grifters, and secondly to talk about a, a book he just edited about the historical legacy of Donald Trump. Um, in terms of characters like um, Trump and Gingrich, um, uh, Viviana, who I, I think would be fair to say uh, fetishize money in a, in a classically sort of almost Marxist sense. What's your reading of, of people like that? People who are obsessed with money and its significance in a social and material sense? Well, it, that is a, certainly part of my perception of money is not that it's always nice and, uh, and cozy and I'm not on a white horse, you know, defending the morality of money always. And I would be interested in actually uh, uh, developing an account of when, again, not interested, that's what, when does money corrupt? And it's certainly in, in politics, we have plenty of examples, both of corruption of money, but also, and I I'm, I'm, know I'm not answering directly what you're saying, but once you mention politics, it re, I, I, I would like to make this connection because it may be of interest to you and some of your viewers. One of the remarkable things in the donations that I observed during the pandemic is that there were small monies. Yeah. So, it, it, which is again the proof that quantity does not always, uh, uh, you know, is not always the key factor, and and then I was thinking actually I did not write about this, but a lot of this starts with political, and this ties back like this to do, to political issues, political donations, right? And uh, we had in 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 many of the campaigns, especially starting with Bernie Sanders. That he he how did he get yeah, a lot small, of the money in yeah, small donations? Yeah, yeah. So here you have like a powerful example of the meaning and in fact actually the consequential impact of small donations. They were they were cute, but they massively you know amount they, they amounted to massive. So amounts. they were sort of simultaneously symbolic and real. Exactly, and I think you know we you know there were. There, there are different explanations about what happened in the pandemic, but one could argue that there was already a kind of precedent of personal donations that involve small amounts of money for meaningful activities, whether it was political or whether it was charitable. Finally, um, Vivian, I know my own personal experience under COVID with money is that I don't 
use it anymore, at least physical, as you say, yeah. fungible money, uh, because of its digitalization and because of uh, the pandemic, we, for a while, at least a couple of years, we didn't go to stores. I'm curious as to your thoughts on cryptocurrency and how this might change everything. We've done a number of shows about Bitcoin, about Ethereum, and about how all these different blockchain-based peer-to-peer currencies will change the world. How does your theory play into that? Yeah, well, certainly the material world of money is, is changing. And certainly the fact that we had easier payment systems helped the donations during the pandemic, it, even for the remittances. You know, if you have these new virtual ways of transmitting money, it makes the technical part uh, easier, faster, uh, more efficient. However, I would emphatically say that the relational and meaningful and moral dimensions of money that I have explored in all these books will, pers- will persist Oh, regardless so we, we can't we can't flush those out exactly they won't wash can't... out no with or without cryptocurrency your culture is essential to money and whether you use a a, a blockchain-based cryptocurrency ethereum or bitcoin or whether you use physical dollars it's not going to make any difference Exactly. It, it, it will make some difference. I'm not saying no difference, but not in the ways that I'm saying. So that the, the meaning of our social relations to each other, the meanings of these uh, um, powerful cultural and social symbols will shape those technical uh, in for good or bad, you know. <laughs> well, Viviana Zaliza, at least in your theory, culture certainly shapes our economy. It's a brilliantly counterintuitive observation. And it explains why in the pandemic, um, in our socially distanced times, money actually brought us together. Uh, Viviana, um, I'm ending with the same question for all my guests um, this year. And I think it's a particularly uh, intriguing question for somebody like yourself who thinks about the world in such an counterintuitive way. Uh, Viviana um, Zalesa, the author of Social Meaning of Money, uh, who, who runs the world, Viviana? Who's in charge? Wow, that's a bit, and, and I'm married to a rabbi, so you're 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 asking me a very. No, no, you don't, don't go and drag out your husband. This is no. for not, not for the rabbi. There's no there's no who who runs the world. Who runs the 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 world remains a profound mystery, and it will remain a profound mystery. We are doing we have these conversations and we in our very modest ways we try to understand facets on the world and many of us try to make it better but it i i uh, think I, it, we will we are living and we will die with this mystery we just have to be attentive to those who try to run the world in exploitative ways and we you know, with action and knowledge. That's the hope we have. And that's why I keep teaching because I do hope that it matters to understand the world better, to to make it better. It's an appropriately uh, Kabbalistic way of thinking about things. Viviana Zalitza, the author of Social Meaning of Money, a distinguished professor of sociology at Princeton University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.